Take a no-nonsense former Shylock, cutthroat music execs, and a ruthless battle for the talents of one singer, and put them in a wacky comedy full of quotable lines and visual gags in a sequel to a movie heralded as one of those rare feats. A movie that's as good as the book. Did lightning strike twice? Find out as we prove to you that Be Cool is not that bad. Welcome, welcome, welcome to this edition of It's Not That Bad, the podcast that looks for A grades in B movies. And we're going to have so much fun with this one because we are talking 2005's Be Cool, the sequel to Get Shorty. And joining me on the show today is my wife, Kayweezy. Oh no! Oh, we're going oh, all night. Oh, no, you did all show there. long. Okay. Come on, twinkle, twinkle, baby, twinkle, twinkle. <laughs> <laughs> Carrie, how are you doing today? I am so stoked to be back, and especially talking be cool. Now, as we were preparing for this, we were a little shocked at just how lowly rated this is because it is such a fun film. We're going to get to the tomato meter in a second. But for you, when you realized that this movie qualified to be on this show, what was your initial reaction? Shock. Pure shock and heartbreak, actually, to be honest. <laughs> I, I mean, <laughs> you know what? Why? Like, how is how are we even sitting here today talking be cool? How is this possible? Come on, people. Come on, critics. What is wrong with you? Uh, there's lots just wrong with the critics. Be but cool, man. Just be, just be cool, just be man. Cool. Just be cool about be cool. But before we get into talking about this, you know it's time. It is time to take be cool and trailerize it. Chili Palmer went from a world of hit men to hit movies. Now he's looking for the next big hit singer. But after the Russians put a hit on his friend and record label exec, Chili's looking to hit back. With a cast of heavy hitters playing characters who couldn't give two hits, Be Cool is the hit comedy of 2005. Rated PG-13. <laughs> that was awesome. <laughs> uh, wordplay. Wordplay. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't give two hits. Couldn't give two hits about a damn nice. thing. Nice. Okay, so let's go through just who's in this big comedy because it is a cavalcade of great actors who have either appeared in Tarantino films or comedy movies. You've got John Travolta. Uma Thurman, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Vince Vaughn, Cedric the Entertainer, Andre 3000, Christina Milian, Harvey Keitel, Danny DeVito. Like, this is a who's who of 2005 acting. And it's it's a, it's an insane cast. It really was. I, th- I was going to say it might be easier to list who wasn't involved in this picture well you know what's funny we're going to do that right now because there were a list of actors who were up for the role of Edie which was played by Uma Thurman that weren't in this film so take the picture the role that Uma Thurman played Edie and then try to picture one of the following actresses in it Jennifer Connelly Charlize Theron Naomi Watts or Halle Berry like when you think about this role and how Uma Thurman played it, is it? It's kind of hard to picture kind of anyone else in that role. Although I could see Charlize Theron in it. 
No, you know what? Um, the chemistry behind like Travolta and Thurman, come on. I mean, there there like, is that connection. And they would have had that connection with Halle Berry because Travolta and Berry were starred together in Swordfish. But yes, it's hard to, you know, ignore that Pulp Fiction togetherness between the two because they were, they, they played off each other so well. Right, and Uma was actually... Um, very much recommended by John Travolta. Oh, like, absolutely. Like, he had a big part in the casting of that. So He, he was straight up throwing around his John Travolta weight around, and it worked. <laughs> Hopefully it wasn't his Battlefield Earth weight, because that would have been bad. Um, it also almost starred Joe Pesci. Now, we don't know what role he was going to be in. I can only imagine what Pesci would have been, like, say, in... It's hard to say. Would he have been like the Vince Vaughn character? Would he have been the Harvey Keitel character? I'm curious. No, no. I think he probably would have maybe. um, Maybe the DeVito character? I don't know. I could quite easily see Joe Pesci being played by the character that Robert Pastorelli. Joe Loop. Had played, yeah. Joe Loop. You know, I I could see that, but you know what's funny? And admittedly, it's, it's... it's sad that Robert Pastorelli passed away while while filming this. Um, he was he was perfect as Joe Loop. He really oh was. God. I can't picture Pesci as Joe Loop. It just it it may, maybe too much. I don't know. Uh, and now I've seen the movie. I rewatched it again last night. I tried to come prepared. One thing, one character spotting that I must have missed a second time and a third time and a fourth time because I know I've watched this movie more than once or thrice. Um, James Gandolfini. I did not see James Gandolfini at all. He, I, I know. Okay, so not it's not just like, me. I mean, he's listed. Yeah, there's, there's a ton of cameos. I mean, you've got, you know, obviously in the the end concert scene, you got Gene Simmons is there. Oh, Seth Green is the director. Oh, that was hilarious. Um, <laughs> Fred Durst is the is in that concert. Scene. Also, uh, hard to spot, but he is apparently there in the that end concert scene. Author Dan Brown, and the name Dan Brown doesn't actually ring a bell. The guy who wrote the Da Vinci Code, Angels and Demons, like we're talking like a like a top notch author, and he's there. I'm not, I don't know how he got there. It just seems weird to have like you know Gene Simmons, Fred Durst, and the guy that writes about weird art conspiracies. Like it's it's cool that he's there, but again, th- there is so many you know blink and you miss it kind of moments in this. Like it, it is just a cavalcade of of, of star talent. Well, interestingly enough as well, um, so the character that Dwayne Johnson, Dwayne, sorry, The Rock Johnson plays Mm -hmm. um, in this movie was based on... On an actual film critic. A real film critic who actually also appears in the Viper Room scene. Exactly. There, There are so many, like, nice little, you know, hat tips and nods to so much. Also, if you, if you hear the name... Elliot Wilhelm, and you don't in your mind instantly hear the Wilhelm scream, you are living life wrong. I'm sorry. <laughs> I am so sorry. Um, it was directed by F. Gary Gray. Um, 
probably best known for directing movies like Men in Black International, Straight Outta Compton, The Italian Job, The Negotiator. Negotiator, such a good film. Um, But he's also done music videos for Ice Cube, Cypress Hill, Coolio, TLC, Will Smith. Like, we're talking a very accomplished director. And for a movie that's based on trying to get into the music industry, it's kind of cool that, you know, you have F. Gary Gray, who is a a noted, you know, music video director, to be able to take, you know, to kind of take the reins. But I find it funny because Barry Sonnenfeld directed Get Shorty, the original. And he also directed Men in Black, like the first three Men in Black films. So it kind of makes sense for F. Gary Gray to, you know, direct the sequel to a Barry Sonnenfeld film and then eventually direct the sequel to a bunch of Barry Sonnenfeld films. Sonnenfeld almost directed this, but I guess scheduling didn't allow for it. But it was also almost directed by Brett Ratner, and I am so, so happy that F. Gary Gray was in the director's chair for this because I have not forgiven Brett Ratner for X-Men The Last Stand. The, <laughs> the things that he did to the X-Men franchise were unforgivable. Now, yeah, the, stand down. Stay away <laughs> from an Elmore Leonard product, okay? Do, 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 don't be touching my be cool, Brett Ratner. <laughs> <laughs> um, of course, you mentioned it was based on an Elmore Leonard book. Now, He is such a prolific writer, and a lot of his books have been turned into movies. Obviously, we talked about, um, you know, Get Shorty, uh, Justified, uh, the the TV series, uh, Out of Sight, which starred Jennifer Lopez, uh, which eventually then spawned into the Karen Sisko TV series, which starred Carla Gugino, uh, Jackie Brown, I know that's one of your favorite Tarantino films, uh, The Big Bounce, 52 Pickup, 310 to Yuma. There are so there is so much Elmore Leonard in the world of movie and television that it's he Elmore Leonard has such a good good grasp on what made good content and he has gone on to set you know before he passed away he had gone on to say that Get Shorty was probably the best film adaptation of any of his books but does this match up to that Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, And you know what? I would tend to argue that I really enjoyed Jackie Brown. So I tend to wonder what it was that he saw um, differently Mm -hmm. in in Get Shorty. Um, Yeah. You know what? I didn't come prepared. I didn't do my homework (laughs) because I really would have loved to have researched, you know, any quotes from Elmore Leonard himself on mm. this movie. Well, I mean, the, here's the thing: like, it's it doesn't necessarily stay as faithful to the book, I think, as Get Shorty did, but it's it's no, it's, it's still a really really good movie, and it showed in the box office. Now, here's the deal: fifty three million dollar budget, so a fair amount, especially when you consider how many people are in it. it made fifty six million dollars domestically and keep in mind these are two thousand five dollars here and we're doing this podcast in 2021 so we're a little behind the times um but it made 95 million worldwide so it's a money maker and that's it, it clearly with the cast like that who wouldn't want to go to see it a lot of people did because when it debuted on the week on the march 4th 2005 weekend it debuted at number two with a 23 almost 23 and a half million dollar take domestically but that's second behind the pacifier vin diesel as a nanny oh. topped this one out and keep in mind too the pacifier 
was released by Disney. So you have a ton of Disney money pushing the hell out of that movie. And of course, 2005, we're talking like, you know, we're talking peak level Vin Diesel here. Yeah, so you know Vin Diesel at the at what is the height of his like you know triple X era, you know, film career. There's a lot. There's a lot. The big big spotlight you know on Vin Diesel. So it makes sense that that and it's it's a family friendly movie again. Even though Be Cool was rated PG thirteen, right? We're talking a family friendly movie of the like the pacifier. Family friendly movies are going to drag in families to see the films. So you're almost you know. For the two people who go to be cool on a date, four people, mom, dad, and the kids, are going to go see the pacifier. So it, it's it it's good that be cool finished second, you know. But it's hard to beat a family oriented Disney film that's coming out of the theaters, and and that that's just logistics at that point. Now, we mentioned at the top of the show that the tomato meter did not fare well for this one. Um, but I want to put it into perspective here. Okay. So Be Cool has a 30% tomato meter with a 42% audience score. In comparison, and really the only comparison you can give to it is Get Shorty, because you know we're talking the sequel to Get Shorty. Get Shorty sits currently as an at an 88% tomato meter with a 70% audience score. So is Be Cool that much worse than Get Shorty? That is not a fair question. Now, it's also a very, I almost want to say Be Cool was far more grandiose Mm -hmm. with the lineup of actors, not only actors, but music, musical celebrities as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, with with a sequel, of course, you have to go, you know, go big or go home kind of thing. It was. It was grandiose. And I I tend to wonder if, um, like, I, I... See, I love this movie so much that I can't even put myself in the mindset to see anything potentially wrong with it. Like, I I am at a loss. I, I will say it in all fairness, and I'm probably going to get roasted by you for this. I still, to this day, have never seen Get Shorty. So what? what? Yeah. How is that possible? Um, I fell asleep, I guess. I don't know. Could be. Um, but, that, but there's the interesting thing in that... in. In reviewing Be Cool and, and taking a look back at it, you know, I was able to watch it without the um, the weight of expectation that Get Shorty probably put on this film. Because, again, if you have Elmore Leonard fans are going to go see an Elmore Leonard movie. And if Get Shorty is, you know, the one the movie that Elmore Leonard himself thinks did his book the most justice, then Elmore Leonard fans are going to like it. Be Cool is not in that range of, did it do the book justice? So Elmore Leonard fans are going to be like, what the hell is this? I'm not even sure if it's Elmore Leonard fans or if it's really just people being extraordinarily critical of it as a movie on its own. Um, For example, here, I, I had to write this quote down from a Michael Compton of uh, a film critic of Real to Real, okay? Be Cool is a lukewarm sequel to an overrated original. Boasting a smorgasbord of Hollywood talent, Be Cool is a rather tepid comedy with just enough charm to be passable. Wow. Tepid? 
Yeah. Tepid? Yeah. I, 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 I'm almost, I feel like I'm channeling David Tennant. I, I can hear him going, tepid? I, it's not tepid. <laughs> like, I read that, and and that cut me. Cut me deep. I mean, here's the thing. Like, if you didn't like the original, there's no way you're going to like the sequel. Right? That, that's just a given, right? Anyone who poo-pooed on the first Star Wars is going to poo-poo on every other Star Wars. That's basically, you know, it, it's not, clearly it's not in Michael Compton's wheelhouse. You know, so A, why are you reviewing the damn film, Michael Compton? But, you know, <laughs> but he puts his initial bias right out on Front Street in that if he thought that Get Shorty was overrated, then he's really not going to like be cool. So it's one of those things where, I mean, at least from my perspective, I was able to take a look at Be Cool as a singular entity, knowing that there's a backstory, but not being pre or not prejudging the film based on Get Shorty. And I never read the book either. Right. And that's a good example is because Be Cool only very narrowly references um, maybe even two points of the book. Mm-hmm. It took a lot of liberties with the screenplay versus the novel. Which is what they wanted to do with Get Shorty. And, the, yes. The studio really wanted to get Shorty to more deviate from the original like dialogue from the book the minute John Travolta got involved, then it was all of a sudden like, no, no, we're, we're going to make it sound like a no more Leonard Tarantino-esque kind of film. Be Cool did deviate from the original dialogue. Right. And I think that is very much the difference. Um, and that's my point, is that Elmore Leonard was magical at writing, I mean, traditionally uh, Westerns, but anything in the vein of like, a gangster, you know, mystery in that all the characters are kind of intertwined and and the storyline is going to be, you know, very... um, Bad guys with golden hearts and guns. Yes, yes, absolutely, right? Um, But this movie wasn't. It was light, it was funny, it did not take itself seriously, but it also drew attention to that mm-hmm. you know the fact that there were so many times in written in the dialogue where it intentionally pointed out um that it was almost being ironic and i think one of the the, the more interesting things too is that now i off, offhand i do not know when be cool was written what year was it was released but i will say as far as the book goes but you know, the movie industry... 1999. 1999. So, okay, so it's not that far removed from the current music scene uh, as far as how the industry goes. But let's be also be very, very, very honest here. The music industry, you know, in and around that time was in the process of changing greatly. You had, you know, the introduction of Napster and LimeWire and things like that. You had, you know labels that were falling apart at the seams and the music industry you know year to year to year changes much more i think than the movie industry does so i think you have to change a little bit of that dialogue in order to to make a movie of the times because otherwise you're doing not necessarily a period piece but you're definitely doing a you know a, a, a moment in time piece and you know, even though it's six years difference from book to movie release, a lot can change in the music industry in six years. 
Very true. Mm -hmm. So let's get to the breakdown of this. And I want to throw it out to you. Good acting. And let's start right at the top of the bill. John Travolta. Yes. Oh, my God. Chili Palmer. Um, (laughs) He, you know what? He played his role so well. But I found myself questioning last night if I could ever actually picture him as a Shylock. Because he just had such a big heart and he, he he's such a good guy in black, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, it, I don't know. Again, I just, I love Travolta. I loved him in this role. He was charming. He was commanding. He was funny. He was perfect as Chili Palmer. That's the thing. Like, for a movie called Be Cool... Right. It's he was cool through the whole thing. And, you know, the fact that Chili Palmer never lost his ish. Chili Palmer never got mad. Chili Palmer, I'm sure he was mad, but he never actually let that shine through or act on on anger emotions. Chili Chili Palmer is just chill. Like he's very much his character name. Um, And the fact that that never changes. He's always the man with the plan and just a just a beacon of optimism through this. And it works. It works so well. And the nice thing is it plays very well off of Edie. Yeah. Oh my gosh, yeah. And like I mentioned before, their chemistry. Um, the fact that they threw in the the, the dance scene mm-hmm. as uh, as an homage to um, their pulp fiction made famous dance scene and as I mentioned to you when we were watching this I as far as finding quotes and I really wish that I had looked this up to see if Quentin Tarantino had made any remarks mm-hmm. um, well, on this movie and the dance scene because Tarantino is such so an Elmore well Leonard fan to begin with yes. and it was actually apparently Tarantino who had convinced Travolta to take the role and get shorty in the first place because Travolta had initially turned it down but Tarantino apparently you know, convince them. Of course, being an Elmore Leonard fan himself, right? Tarantino's, of course, is going to be like, no, 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 no. You, you got, you got to do this. You got to be in this movie. Oh my god, I did not know that. Mm-hmm. And wow, mind blown. And it's funny because we we mentioned that list of actresses off the top, and the fact that Edie is, you know, she's she's driven, she's passionate, but of course, she's also very much in that her world just crumpled because you know her husband even though he wasn't exactly the best of husbands, you know, left her in the lurch when he died, right? And she's just trying to pick up the pieces. I don't know if any of those four actresses would have been able to convey that as comedically as Uma Thurman did because she is she is actually quite a funny actress when she's in a comedic role. And, you know, I'm sure Naomi Watts could have done it. I could very easily see an Elizabeth Banks in that role, but in 2005, Uma Thurman, perfect for the role because it's still in that, not mafia, but in that in that wise guys and cutthroats kind of vibe. But she brought that that lightness and levity, but didn't feel out of place in it. Oh yeah, no, she was absolutely perfect. Mm-hmm. She was perfect, and I love too how she kind of delivered that. You know. Is she is she quite sober? Is she you know has she had a few drinks? You know, is this like how she's kind of operating herself through life? Um, but she played it so well. 
Mm-hmm. Like it was just always it was kind of subtle and kind of there and and alluded to. But, you know, I, I think it gave the character and it gave um, there was a depth. It did. It gave it a depth and almost kind of like you feel so bad for her because she just lost her husband. And yes, he did leave her in the lurch and he, you know, left her to sort things out. And, you know, whether the money is there or not, it was always kind of in question. Um, but she was also incredibly strong, you know, through it all. Mm-hmm. It, it could have been something that would be so breaking, but at never one point did you see her crumble. It was awesome. It was well played. Now, if Travolta and Uma Thurman are supposed to be the dynamic duo of this film, I counter your dynamic duo with Vince Vaughn and Dwayne Johnson. Oh, God. (laughs) I'm like, where are you going with this? (laughs) If ever there was a comedic duo in a mafia film. Like we are talking the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of mafia movies. This See, is this is great. I thought you were going to go Cedric the Entertainer and in, in the dynamic between his daughter and him. No, his no, no. daughter drove the bus on that oh, relationship. Yeah. <laughs> oh, very much so. <laughs> but no, like okay, we know what we're going to get with Vince Vaughn out of a Vince Vaughn movie, um, and he just ratcheted it up so much. But the character called for it like anyone who sit there and going like oh what's well, he's just he's just goofing right he's playing he's playing <laughs> right but the character of raji right is supposed to be over the top it's supposed to be like there's a there's a lot of nuance in raji i think despite the over top over the topness of vince vaughn that it calls for because raji you know is you know He's overcompensating, right? He's he's not he's a nothing guy on the inside, but he's trying to be all that in a bag of potato chips on the outside. And you see that every time you know uh, Elliot or Joe Loop would start to call him on his ish, and then be like, "What? Well, well, I'm just saying, I'm just saying, I'm just playing, right?" <laughs> he was, you know what though? He was so laughable mm-hmm. that. This characterization had to be in this movie alone mm-hmm. because any other film, any other bad guy <laughs> acting and, and presenting himself the way that Vince Vaughn did, the way Raji did, mm-hmm. oh my God, you can't take him seriously, and you if, know? And if you aren't he, <laughs> quoting him by the end of this film, were, you, were, your, were your ears plugged? Because there's so, if you're not walking out of this film, go twinkle, twinkle, baby, twinkle, twinkle. <laughs> I, I felt bad for his throat, uh, you know, because it felt like he was almost overstraining his voice as he was as he was talking. But that's someone who's who would be overcompensating. That's something that they would do. They would inflect. They would affect their own voice enough that it fit that whatever role they were mode they were trying to fit. So again, it's it's surprising how how. Well, I think Vince Vaughn brought that character to life and brought it to another level. And I like the fact that he seemed to be the only one acting like that because Elliot, as played by Dwayne The Rock Johnson, right, has his own, you know, backstory, his own emotions. But, you know, he's not he's not matching that level of crazy that Raji's bringing. 
right? And nobody does have it, as as we see in the boot store. Oh, woo! Like, <laughs> um, yeah. Oh my God, they played it so well. But that, but that's the thing. See, Raji comes across as an overcompensating inferiority complex, and you know. Elliot's an inferiority complex of a different kind because, of course, he's letting Raji convince him that he's going to, you know, he's going to make him a star, put him in a video. And no one else in the boardwalk got a video. But, you know, there's just a, a joie de vivre in Elliot. You know, he knows who he is. He's all for it. You know, it doesn't hide it. And it doesn't play on any of those. Tr- I mean, yeah, there's a couple little gags in there about, like, you know, you know the gay bodyguard kind of thing. But it's... But Elliot's not overly gay, right? There's no lisp. There's no tropes. There's none of that, even though he's got his red shiny boots, right? Dancing around in the cowboy shop. I get that. But it's not over the top. And I think the dichotomy of it, the fact that you have The Rock, you have a wrestler, you have someone who's, you know, this is really his only his second comedy movie. The first really being, even though it's more of an action comedy, The Rundown that came out in 2003. Before that, it was like The Mummy Returns and The Scorpion King and just really bad CGI um, and Walking Tall. And then Out Comes Be Cool. And I think of all of those early movies that, that Dwayne Johnson did, I think this is the one that really showed that... No, he's not just a big muscle guy who has ended up in a bunch of films because he's the biggest name in wrestling at the time. He is genuinely hilarious and likable. And, you know, again, yes, The Mummy Returns was a big film. Yes, The Scorpion King was a bit of a stinker. Yes, The Rundown was fun. I think Be Cool was the one that really showed that, that here's a guy that's going to do that uber rare thing. Wrestler does good movie. You know what? You're so right about um, Dwayne The Rock Johnson's range. Mm-hmm. Um, and we see it in every movie he plays. Yeah, like, I mean, you saw it in The Ring. You saw it in his promos. You saw it in, like, just the fun he was having with WWE at the time. Yeah. You know? And it, it translates. Yeah. I think he's very funny by nature, and it definitely worked so well. Mm-hmm. And I think this. I think you see that why John Cena's making a name for himself these days, in that he can be fun and he can be funny and he has range and he he's not just a wrestler; he's an actor. And I'm sure you could count on one hand the number of you know wrestler led films that stand out as being really really good you know Dwayne Johnson's going to have a few of them right I think John Cena's you can list a couple there yeah but is he smarter smarter than a five-year-old uh a no. five a fifth grader, a fifth, a fifth grader. <laughs> <laughs> oh hold on uh, I, I'm barely smarter than a five-year-old at this point. <laughs> no, but is he smarter than a fifth grader? Oh, I think he's definitely smarter than a fifth grader. The the only other time I could I could sit here and reasonably say that a wrestler put out a phenomenal movie, and I'm 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 going out on a limb here, is Rowdy Roddy Piper when he put out the movie They Live. There, there's such that I mean that's a cult classic. Right. It doesn't look like much of a film when you see like the trailer and it's very much a an eighties film, but it's such a 
there is so much more to They Live, and Rowdy Roddy Piper is actually a ton of fun in that. But I, I think the list kind of ends there because Hulk Hogan? No, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. The only time I wrong. The, <laughs> Someone on the internet is wrong. Right now, right now it's my wife. <laughs> but did you know that it was after this movie that The Rock nixed The Rock in his name? Yeah, exactly. It but was after this he became just Dwayne Johnson. Which is, unless of course he's doing something for WWE, right? And then, and then at that point, then then they'll put The Rock kind of in the quotes kind of thing. But the only time I think I really enjoyed Hulk Hogan in a film was... Probably Rocky Three. In that, you know, as Thunderlips, because it was you know, obviously Hogan's playing a caricature of himself. But then once it all said and done, you know, they're they're joking around and saying, "Yeah, it's just for charity." Kind of like it was. That was a good one, but I think Hogan played too much into the Hogan persona. You know, you know, twenty-four inch pythons, brother. Like that. That that doesn't carry for me um but yes Dwayne Johnson John Cena and they live starring Rowdy Roddy Piper those are like those rare occasions where wrestlers were in, made good movies not just were in but made good movies let's move on because you mentioned earlier Cedric the Entertainer as Sin LaSalle a he's wait he's so much fun in this film but if there's a lot of character work in Raji. I think there's an equal amount of character development and character, you know, revelation of Sin LaSalle by Cedric the Entertainer in certain scenes. Uh, he's he's a, he's a much deeper character than just, like, discount Dr. Dre. <laughs> you know, I absolutely love, I loved the pancake scene with his daughter. Mm-hmm. Um, and just the dialogue with his wife where he was like, you know what? Um, we never had it so good. You know, yeah. like, we were brought up on like, I don't know, sugar snacks or whatever. <laughs> but and, and that's the funny thing. Like, you know, there, there's this gangster image, you know, was, you know, rolling with the dub MDs and making gangster rap and like, you know, ruthless record record producer kind of thing. Like, And then you sit there and think, yeah. Dr. Dre probably goes home and makes pancakes for his kids too, right? Like exactly, that's... it shows the other side of uh, you know the gangster life. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and God, I love the pancake uh, uh, spatula scene. It's yeah. like he's got a gun in one hand and a <laughs> flapjack in which, the other. Which uh, again, another one of those little cast notes kind of thing when they open up the trunk and the guys in the background. If if you don't look in the trunk of that car and you instantly scream out Hornburger because yeah. <laughs> because that's the guy from Thirty Rock who yes. played Hornburger and I'm just like it's Hornburger it's Hornburger oh my god yes thank you for mentioning that another there were so many little appearances guest appearances mm-hmm. like hidden gems in this movie oh there, there's I love that there, there's so much meta in this film it's it's great <laughs> um, one of the things though was this monologue that he did when they were in uh, Nick Carr's office right pointing the gun and and going on about this whole like you know you know we you know our people gave so much to to culture and all this kind of stuff that monologue it's not in the book wasn't in the early drafts of the script right and as we were watching this i'm like 
oh my god the, the, this is why tarantino loves elmore leonard so much because it felt like a tarantino moment but to know but to discover that that wasn't in the book that monologue mm-hmm. you know and i'm like oh my god the, this is a line that I could uh, could have pictured in a Tarantino film. It didn't feel out of place in an Elmore Leonard film, and again, it brought it brought that that depth, mm-hmm. right? Oh, you can definitely see the inspiration. Um, and again, I had mentioned there were only really two; they were almost like hidden references, mm-hmm. very, very, very small, to the original novelization of this movie. Mm-hmm. So, yes. The, the writers, the the actors took a lot of liberties and I think they took a lot of chances. And, um, but damn, was it fun. Was it, was it uh, a movie based on the book and stayed true to the story? Hells to the no. But for what it is and what it was and the way that they still um, played in uh, the, the characters with, you know, you've got, Chili Palmer, film producer, and then you've got like the music and record uh, executives, and then you've got the Russian mafia. Yeah, all of just those so much, elements yeah. and how they were interconnected, and all of the you know the the gangster. Um, you've got Cedric the Entertainer and <laughs> Andre Three Thousand. Taboo. 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 You've got their their gangster. Um, you know they, they're they're gangsters, and yet their record. Um, um, what are they like? Uh, producers, producers, exactly. record producers, um, and and the way that they handle business, Taboo. right? <laughs> Showing up with guns pointed to get their money instead of like you know, that's not, you gang- know, that's not gangster dealing that's like with that. <laughs> dealing with how things you know would normally be done in the real world. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, but can we talk about Andre Benjamin for a second here? Oh, can we please? Because I was surprised. How can we not? I, you know, at first I'm like, is this his first film role? Because of course he was um, a member of Outcast, so you know, a lot of music video work there. It wasn't, it wasn't his first film role. He appeared in 2003's Hollywood Homicide with Harrison Ford and Josh Hartnett, um, of which I'm, I, I've never seen that movie, and I hear it's not that good. So um, I'm sure we'll somewhere down the road, years down the road, we'll talk about Hollywood Homicide. I'm sure, but this was the movie that really kind of. You know, I'm like, I was surprised at how funny he was, right? I mean, going later on, of course, he would be in semi-pro as uh, as Coffee Black, but to see him as Dabu, right? It's just such a Dabu is such a caricature of of gangster rap at the time. And it's again over the top, but the, the, he's sitting there, you know, sipping the tea with the pinky out, like it, <laughs> slurping the noodles. Dabu, that's not gangsta. Dabu. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love it. Again, this movie is infinitely quotable. You know, I, I've lost track of the number of times after after seeing this movie the first time. You know, it's like that's not gangsta. Taboo. <laughs> Don't give me no gun. You know what I'll do. <laughs> right? Like his 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 moments in the film are few, but memorable. Memorable is all hell. Um I mean, we need to talk about Harvey Keitel. Because you know, we know Harvey Keitel. You know, we're talking the wolf here. But in but in this, is it me or did Harvey Keitel 
feel out of character or out of place in this role? Oh my God, no. I think I felt quite the opposite. I thought he was absolutely perfect. He wasn't normally, okay, normally the wolf, Harvey Keitel, Mm -hmm. is like no... No nonsense. If you got a problem, yo, he'll solve he's, it. He's going to take care of things. I've been a little iced again. And I know you did. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Vanilla Ice. <laughs> That's not gangster. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, no, you know what? The fact that he was so fun in his character. Um, oh my God, he he. I think he played it absolutely brilliantly. He was. Um, you know, it's again with Vince Vaughn. It's almost like you cannot take him seriously as a bad guy. No. And Harvey Keitel, I think, was very much the same in his role. It's like I think the problem with Harvey Keitel for me, and this again, this is just a me thing. And I mentioned about Raji. Vince Vaughn played him so over the top and so big and so grandiose. And I'm going to draw a comparison here. And it's going to be an odd comparison, but work with me on this one here. Batman Forever. The the the, the George... No, the Val Kilmer Batman. Um, you know, there, there's two bad Batman. There, those are those two. But the Val Kilmer Batman movie. You had Jim Carrey as the Riddler. And he was so over the top and, and really kind of stood out in that film as, you know, the best villain in the film, but you also had Tommy Lee Jones as Two-Face in that. And, you know, I could see Tommy Lee Jones as a Harvey Dent Two-Face, but Tommy Lee Jones played him over the top and trying to match the crazy that Jim Carrey brought to some of those scenes. And that's not what we want out of Two-Face. You, there can be too much crazy on the screen at the same time. And it doesn't work. That's why, you know, I, I recognize the Batman and Robin, you know, the George Clooney one, is arguably the worst Batman to ever Batman on screen. But the saving grace in that one coincidentally is Uma Thurman as Poison Ivy because you know she played it sexy and sultry and and you know calculated and cool and let Arnold Schwarzenegger just drop all the bad Arnie lines but they played well off each other you know when you have two people trying to out crazy each other and one of them is Jim Carrey the other one's going to lose in this case you have you know Vince Vaughn being all the crazy, Harvey Keitel can't compete with that. So stop dancing, Harvey Keitel, and and just be. I think, again, this is a me personal thing. I think I would have preferred a wolf, as opposed to a wolf in sheep's clothing. Yeah. Or Raji's clothing. I, I see where you're going with that, um, but respectfully, I'm going to say that you're wrong. <laughs> I think. Okay, oh, <laughs> Weezy. I, I, you know what? He had to be. He had to be as off the wall as all of the other characters, or it would have seemed incredibly outplaced, mm-hmm. misplaced. Um, I mean, even Chili Palmer, you know, he was very much the, again, he previous in his previous life, he was a Shylock, mm-hmm. he was a film producer, he was cool, but 
he had his lighter side too, where you're almost kind of like, get out of town. This this guy did not used to kill people. But his coolness, uh, Chili Palmer's coolness, played well against Uma Thurman. You know, and you could see why he was helping Uma kind of cope and and move past. And he played well against all these other crazier characters. And when in the scenes when Travolta and Keitel are together, that plays well because Keitel gets to gets to bring it up a notch against a calm, cool, demeanored Chili Palmer. When he's dealing with Sin LaSalle in the office, it's fine because Sin LaSalle is bringing a different energy. Um as opposed to Nick Carr. Um, but with Raji, those scenes were a touch much. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I I loved him. I thought he did great with it. Um, again, <laughs> you know, you, you almost want to say, what, you're really a bad guy? Come on, really? Just <laughs> just sit down. You're so cute. You're funny. <laughs> <laughs> Pat him on the head. Yeah, Send him exactly. On his way. <laughs> exactly. You know, all of the characters, it's like you can't really take them seriously as a threat right and i think that's why it was so important is that linda moon was under contract with this record label right Mm -hmm. um headed up by harvey keitel and you know what it's almost kind of like yeah okay you're you're funny yeah you know and even the hitman that he hires (laughs) to take care of chili palmer it, it, again, it is a cast of laughable mm-hmm. characters, but it's so charming in in its in its humor. I, I I need to point out something here, and it's a subconscious thing. I think after watching the movie, but when you you mentioned Christina Milian's character, Linda Moon, can her character not be introduced or t- referred to at all without saying Linda Moon, <laughs> right? Because you know, like we get it. Her full, her name is Linda Moon, but they say Linda Moon so often. You think is this one word, <laughs> right? Because no one says this is Linda, this is Miss Moon. No, Linda Moon. Every time. What were your thoughts though on Christina Milian? Okay, I just have to uh, to to say and point out that yes, and when she was introduced at the Aerosmith concert, Linda, as Linda Moon. Moon. <laughs> you know, I mean. Previously, she was completely unknown. So mm-hmm. for Steven Tyler to introduce Linda Moon and the crowd goes wild. And it's like most people at that point before she were was introduced, it's like, who the f- is that? There's like three <laughs> people. Who the f- is Linda Moon? There's three people in the crowd going, oh, she went solo from the chicks. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Um, uh, also, how does that, how do, how do the chicks get booked at the Viper Room? Seriously. <laughs> uh, connections? I don't know. Do you, you know, think Raji's the guy Raji, with connections? Raji set it up. <laughs> I, I I don't know how. <laughs> it, was, it was the baseball bat. It had a certain uh, a certain weight to it. <laughs> I I mean, you know, obviously this this character, you know, Linda Moon is is not the center of attention in this film. Even though she's you know the one that everyone's trying to to get right, and I think you know by putting someone like a Christina Milian in it. It doesn't overshadow the fact of it of how many other people are in this film. I think if you put, you know, again we're talking two thousand five here. If you put a Mariah Carey in this film, then I think the role's too big, right? If you put, you know, I think two thousand five, you put Christina Aguilera in this role, 
And I think the role's too big. I think Christine Milian um, is a perfect fit on an ensemble viewpoint as opposed to let's get the biggest singer out there and put him in. I don't know. I could have seen maybe a Lady Gaga and I'm trying to think back to 2005 and where she was in her career at that point. I mean, uh, she would have just been starting out if I'm not mistaken. Possibly, possibly. But I mean, and but there's the thing, right? You, if you take the biggest name in pop music at the time, put them in this role, then it's unbelievable that they're, you know, that they haven't been discovered already. Right. Well, I think I like, I liked the change in her character where when she was with the chicks and, you know, um, playing at what seemed to be like a strip club, was it? I don't that's, know. That's, that's the Viper Room. <laughs> the Viper Room. Um, I okay, so she just seemed to start out as this innocent young girl. And my God, did she own it when she got on stage with, uh, with Aerosmith. Mm-hmm. Like, but in the characterization of of her character or the the build the character build mm-hmm. you never once saw where she would get the the confidence confidence yeah, yeah the stage presence i mean she don't get me wrong stage presence she owned it when she played the viper room mm-hmm. however to command attention and to go up beside steven tyler is like when exactly did and can i just point out the awkwardness of that scene, which was actually from a concert um, filmed at uh, the Tweeter Center in Mansfield, mm-hmm. um, June 24th, 2004, so a year before this movie came out. But Steven Tyler, when he would go to put his arm around her, mm-hmm. would like have his hand like five feet from her. It was He pulled could, the Keanu Reeves. You could sense the awkwardness, mm-hmm. yet even, even with that awkwardness, they still, both of them, performed and killed it. I will say, and this is speaking as, you know, as a musician, right? When you get on stage, you know, you almost, you, you take on that stage persona, right? You put a little extra emphasis into everything. And then after the show's done, you, 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 go, you go back to your, to your chair and all that and you just, you know, sip on your free diet ginger ale and you know try and make it through the to the next set again i'm gonna go david Tennant and put some emphasis on it put some emphasis yes but um (laughs) (laughs) sorry i had to (laughs) oh i I can never for the record go watch staged just just go watch staged this is a public service announcement (laughs) dear world please go watch staged now um (laughs) Uh, but I, I will say that there was that scene like after the concert, like after she did her song and, and she gets off on stage and like her and Joe, you know, Joe Perry's, do, you know, doing his guitar change and whatnot. And you see that moment where she's like, you know, I, I can't even breathe. And Joe, mm-hmm. Joe Perry's like, oh, that that happens. And I yeah, love that. Yeah, exactly. Because that shows that that wasn't just confidence. That was stage presence. There is a big difference. There was a huge difference in that in that stage presence versus real life personality. That's not confidence. That's character up there. So when you see these, you know, you know, rock stars know that afterwards they're going to get off on stage, you know, play their match three puzzle games on their phone and then go home and make pancakes for their daughters because, you know, never had it so good pancakes. Right. But 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 that made sense. You know, I did. Again, I thought she fit in well 
in the ensemble and didn't overshadow the ensemble because then it probably would have felt like oh it's 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 a star piece for them and it's not an ensemble comedy mm-hmm. agreed mm-hmm. one of the things i did like about this film as well is that the director f gary gray despite some of the reservations that he had about making this a pg-13 film the entire vibe of the movie was that it's almost like he encouraged everyone to just have fun like it felt like everyone was was just having a good time together it, it felt like a fun production to be on and oh my god if the post credit scenes said anything about the fun had on set dance party the, the dance parties right mm-hmm. like and it, whether it was staged or whether it was like just filmed along the making of this it was so it looked so much fun mm-hmm. i always love when movies would do those like those credit bloopers you know and, and it goes back to i remember watching the cannonball run movies and they would always do that in those and this again every everyone felt like they were having fun right and and you know we talked about the movie being kind of meta and let's talk let's talk about this opening scene right the whole thing about you know you're only allowed to use the f word once which by the way you're on a you're on a two f- limit and now we're at three okay but i, I want to read a quote from F. Gary Gray. Uh, he did an interview with Deadline uh, magazine in August of 2015. And he was talking about this. The quote was this. With Be Cool, I made some assumptions in thinking that movie was going to work. I just made a successful PG-13 uh, film, which was the Italian job. And when I walked into Be Cool, it was rated R. And then at the last minute in pre-production, I was told, well, you have to make this PG-13. I should have walked off the film. This was a movie about Shylocks and gangster rappers, and if you can't make that world edgy, you probably shouldn't do it. I walked in thinking I was going to make one movie, and then it changed. Maybe it was arrogant of me to think because I had success in this realm of PG-13, I could make that work. Wow. Okay, again, that is so counterintuitive to how I saw the final product, Mm -hmm. and I am so grateful Uh, F. Gary Gray that you stayed with it because Mm -hmm. the book itself and again I mentioned the book is completely worlds different leave the book as it is as it's meant to be with that world Mm -hmm. you know that world of dropping F-bombs and gangsters and you know really bad guys right and oh my god be proud that you created something so fun Mm -hmm. that that yeah is family safe i mean (laughs) you've got like gangsters running around with guns out of their back pocket and you know tucked into their (laughs) way low riding underwear (laughs) yeah waving to um to his daughter oh god what was her name hi Uh, to sean hi to (laughs) sean you know yet their 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 guns are hanging out of their back pockets As, as they're threatening hornberger oh you know what yes i love that it didn't take itself too seriously. Mm-hmm. It was like the complete juxtaposition of it, it. The movie knew what it was. Yes, the movie knew that it needed to have a sense of humor because of what it was. I mean, the entire idea that Chili Palmer hates sequels and he's in a sequel. Mm-hmm. Like the entire premise of the storyline itself is just pure meta. So, it, the, I think the fact that F. Gary Gray made the movie meta and just dive right into it 
regardless of rating, PG-13, um, R rating, whatever, I think as a as far as a box office goes, I think it does work better as a PG-13 film. I think as far as a script goes, the fact that they made fun of the fact that you know, you were only allowed to do so much in a PG-13 film to make it PG-13, and they and they shot that shot right off the bat. I, I, it, that opening scene set the tone for so much um, self-knowledge, self-accepting comedy that I, I think it was... I think that opening scene was perfectly written, and people may, you know, people make, you know, make of that as like, well, you know, is this, you know, are these people complaining about the fact that they're making a PG-13 film? Maybe, but it plays. It's funny, and it makes the movie almost its own inside joke, and and we all get it. It is funny, and it is quotable. And I think as far as directing goes, the actors were handled well, the scenes were handled well, and the flow was handled well. Let's talk about costume for a second here, because we mentioned there's a lot of character development as far as like Raji and Sin LaSalle goes. And especially especially in the case of Raj. Mm-hmm. Raji's, Raji's wardrobe screams of someone who is trying way too hard to be noticed. I, I have to point out, that I loved that it was all knockoff, right? So if he's supposed to be this, I don't even know. How if would it's I know like that you would pick up on record that. producer, um, or he? What he was like a manager? Would is that what you would kind of place yeah, him? Yeah, he's Linda he, Moon's he, manager. He was Linda Moon's manager. Okay, all right. So manager slash bad guy. Anyway, completely over the top, completely was, over the top was with he, the fedora. Was he wearing Louis Vuitton? The matching sneaks. Yes. His Louis Vuitton jacket, mm-hmm. his Burberry jacket, all completely knockoff. It was made to look good. So it was Louis Vuitton and he it, was, you know, <laughs> rocking some couch instead of coach. It was. It was <laughs> like it was like he had the look of like an overdone um. Oh God! Over the top. <laughs> so he the, was completely the, over the, the top. The kind of stuff that you would buy in New York off some guy off the street who's carrying stuff in a Star Wars bed sheet. Yes, I, true story. True, yes. very true story. <laughs> <laughs> yes, this isn't just some random thing. This happened. <laughs> <laughs> and you sitting there going, "I miss like, that purse." You sitting there going, "Like you know what? That the, the purse is nice. The Star Wars bed sheet. You know." <laughs> <laughs> oh. The, the, Again, there's a story there. There is an actual story. The risk story. of getting arrested for, you know, a $50 coach bag. Hey, I, I, I on my coach. other podcast, I, I have admitted to my Columbia House shame on my other podcast, Angel <laughs> Mixtape, so, you know, we're, we're way past this at this point. Although now people are going to be walking around New York going, where's the guy with the Star Wars bed sheet? Right. I need my, I need my Vui Liton. Side note, <laughs> if you do see someone with a... A slung bed sheet over their back. It's got fake full goods. Of, full of Star Wars bed sheets. <laughs> Flag them down. Oh my god! <laughs> but but even Sin LaSalle, right? Clearly, Sin is a highly educated guy, and he's working in gangster rap. And the fact that he is oftentimes the smartest guy in the room, yet hanging out with Dabu, right? It it almost emphasizes the fact that he's the smartest guy in the room, and it's it's. It's interesting because clearly, clearly, 
He's a self-made mogul. He is, you know, I keep bringing up the Dr. Dre of the film, right? But it's not like Sin LaSalle is actually, you know, a less than smart person who surrounds himself with idiots, right? He is a smart guy, just happens to surround himself with genetic freak mutation people (laughs) that look like they were probed by an air hose set to full. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not. Full full credit to the casting of the WMDs. That 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 is a that is an episode of American Gladiators that needs to happen. <laughs> and now you're you're watching it. I, I, and, I can picture and, it. And you're yeah. trying to picture it's like I'm Blaze. I'm Fire. This is American Gladiators, gangsta style. <laughs> Run the obstacle course before we pop a cap in your ass. <laughs> Although I would watch I would watch that show. I would absolutely watch that show. Um, Twitter has spoken on this film. All right. So let's go through some of these here. Uh, our good friend Justin Fortune um, chimed in with one. Get Shorty was the best Elmore, La- ad- Elmore Leonard adaptation to date. The novel Be Cool was a great follow-up to Get Shorty. You're an Elmore Leonard fan. You've seen a lot of the movies and you've read a lot of the books. Is Get Shorty the best Elmore Leonard adaptation to date? Jackie Brown. Jackie, it's interesting. Go check it out if you haven't seen it already. Trust me on this one. It's interesting because uh, Spirit of 76 um, chimed in with, you prefer Shorty to Jackie Brown because of, or in spite of, Tarantino. Because let's be honest, Get Shorty is a Barry Sonnenfeld film, right? And Sonnenfeld, you know, works a movie differently than Tarantino does. So to you, compare the two. Like, could you picture get shorty as directed by tarantino rather than how it's directed by barry sonnenfeld okay sorry i just the light bulb just went on and i just understood the question at hand Mm -hmm. again very different styles Mm -hmm. and yes i agree that a tarantino produced directed get shorty be cool would have been completely different but it would have missed and it would have lost the fun of it. Mm-hmm. Um, Justin's response to that, by the way, was in spite of, I love Jackie Brown, but strictly as an adaptation of the source material. Get Shorty does a better job with both with regard to characters and plots. Jackie Brown is pretty far removed from Rum Punch almost as much as Be Cool. And I tend to wonder if some of the fun was brought and made and brought to fruition by Danny DeVito. And his comedic involvement. Um, I you know what's funny, Danny DeVito's character is almost like a throwaway. I I mean I do appreciate the the joke that he's being considered to be cast as Johnny Cash in his okay, next project. No, no. See, here's the thing, and you and I will forgive you because you have not seen Get Shorty. Okay, he is definitely not a throwaway. You will forgive my transgressions. In, yes, I forgive you. I I understand your absolute ignorance to the importance <laughs> of Danny DeVito in this movie. So basically you're sitting there saying, sit down, dumbass, and let me school you. Yes. <laughs> but that's okay. I've forgiven you already. I will, I will go sit in the corner and do my penance. So, no, but you have to understand that Get Shorty, right? Uh, I mean, that was Danny DeVito's film. He was in Be Cool almost as that little nod to the fact that this is a sequel. So he was far more important than you're giving mm-hmm. him credit for in Be Cool. 
also too um, that DeVito was listed as a producer on this film and I really and that's where I'm saying that I truly feel like a lot of the fun was maybe inspired and brought from Danny DeVito and that's kind of my point I'm trying to make it is possible uh, another point from Justin Fortune here uh, the movie is flat because it constantly has to remind you that it's a sequel and again I I never saw Get Shorty so I mean me personally I was able to um, I was able to disassociate the fact that it's a sequel I just was able to list this as backstory in comparison to. But that was the running joke of it, though. It, it is. The fact, um, the fact that Chili Palmer hates sequels made the sequel even funnier unto itself. Yes, and I mean the everything, right? That they kept drawing back to get Leo um, in in Be Cool. You know, it again, it, uh, it didn't take itself too seriously, and I really think it was meant to be, it was meant to give that light... Um, reference or nod back to Get Shorty. Mm-hmm. He also mentions The Rock and Vince Vaughn were hilarious. Fully agree. The Itch Rock radio podcast chimed in with, seems like a good choice. It's not a good movie in terms of storytelling, but it's quotable and very funny. And he follows it up with, taboo. That's not gangsta. <laughs> <laughs> Again, fully agree, guys. Absolutely fully agree. This movie is... So quotable, so quote. the 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 hallmark of a good comedy film is if you are walking into the movie and quoting the lines for days. And this is definitely that film. The script is is so self self referential. Self referential. I can't speak today. It's so self referential, but funny as hell. It's really the Cadillac of sequels. <laughs> it is the Cadillac of sequels. <laughs> <laughs> and of hybrids. Uh, okay, the FJ podcast, uh, who have chimed in before for, uh, for us. Thank you so much for that, by the way. Um, it's pretty bad. A crass and shallow attempt to rework something that worked better than it should have the first time without much of the magic that made it so special the first time around. And, and again, this is one of those things where... You're comparing this to, you know, a well-received, well-loved, you know, regardless what your, you know, your your previous critics said about Get Shorty being overrated, um, is that, you know, when you have something that works so well and it's loved so much and you go back to it, it's hard to sit there. That's why sequels don't do so well for the most part, you know. Again, we've done the whole count on one hand thing. You can probably count on one hand the number of sequels that have surpassed a successful predecessor. You know, not every sequel can be an Empire Strikes Back. Not every sequel can be a Godfather Part 2. You know, it is so interesting that we're talking about that and, and the take on this because this being a sequel, coming back with star power, you know, it's coming back with, and again, not just entertain, not just movies, but musical entertainment mm-hmm. lineups as well. So I am almost shocked that as a sequel, it didn't do better than Get Shorty in the fact that it came back with, you know, like I said, like bigger, I mean, bigger characters and um, to have, you know, 
Aerosmith mm-hmm. involvement and Andre 3000 and Dwayne The Rock Johnson, like to come back with that level of star power and to do so poorly mm-hmm. as a sequel, I do find it shocking. I, I, I did get a kick out of the, the, the Steven Tyler line in the film where he's talking about like, you know, I'm not one of those singers that's had to appear in films. You know, I've, I've gotten by so far without doing that. Well, Mr. Tyler, <laughs> need I remind you of another sequel you were in, Wayne's World 2. Again, that was the, <laughs> it's the fact that it never took itself too seriously exactly. that, and drew attention to the irony. Meta, meta in this works. And yeah, I mean, it's a, diff- it's a different beast. It's absolutely a different beast from Get Shorty, even though it's in the, it's the same characters. It's a different world. Now, you're talking in the first film, a Shylock trying to get into the movie business and get out of the Shylock business. Now you have a former Shylock media mogul trying to get out of that world and into the music business. Well, it's got to focus on the music business. It's a different world, an absolutely different world, and it's going to play differently. Animation has chimed in as well. Uh, They say, all I remember is it was disappointing after the brilliance of Get Shorty, but I haven't seen it since the theater. I'm excited to listen to the pod and see if I should revisit it. Yes, absolutely revisit this movie. Um, But here's a hint. Don't think of it as a sequel to Get Shorty. Because in essence, it's not right it is the continuing story of it would be as if if you take a look at serial television right each episode is not a sequel unto itself right it's the continuing adventures of right not every doctor who episode is a sequel to the one that happened before it you know not every episode of bones is a sequel to the one that happened before it yes they do have these instances where you have continuing storylines and story arcs over the over the course of a, of a of a season but no this is just the next stage of chili palmer's life and even in everyone else's lives right you think about the stages of your own life you know what you did when you were 15 16 it's going to be different than what you did when you're 30 and the, the the supporting cast to your life story is going to be different from then to then this is just that this is chili palmer's next stage in life and it's some characters carry over just as in life some characters carry over uh into the next into the next story on that note i'm really disappointed that we will never see the movie made on the life of James Wood's character. No. Ah. Uh, <laughs> no. Never made it. No, never made it. Um, our good friend, Tim McCarthy, from 22 Minutes, quote unquote, and we are now definitely over our PG-13 level here. That movie f- rocks. Twinkle, twinkle, baby. Nice. <laughs> right? Big fan of that. Thank you. I approve. So, listeners of the podcast will remember Tim from the episode he did with us on The Internship, which is another one of those surprisingly good Vince Vaughn films. Um, yes, Vince Vaughn once again carries the ball in this one. Uh, and then Pedestrian at Best chimes in with, yeah, it was exactly what we expected. Good for what it was trying to achieve. And I think this might be one of the ones that's the most nail-on-the-head comments about this film is that 
it wanted to be self-referential. It wanted to be meta. It wanted to be fun and funny. And I think it succeeded in that. So now comes the time. We have to take all of this and put it to you. So, (laughs) K-Weezy. K-Weezy. (laughs) K-Weezy. Who is your MVP of 2005's Be Cool? Oh. You know what? They're, this is like asking Tori Amos to pick her favorite child, naming her favorite song. Um, <laughs> For the record, Tori Amos doesn't have that many children. She calls her songs her children. So <laughs> Yeah, and, and this is very much the same type of question. Um, all of the actors did exactly what they set out to do. And they made this movie so enjoyable to watch, whether the critics agree or not. I don't care. Yep, I think I'm at four, five, six. You know. Um, let's let's just get this out of the way now. It and oh, it was so good. Um, okay, not my MVP, but sadly, you did miss Debbie Mazur's. De- Debbie Mazar, yes, Mazar. Sorry, I'm thinking grab a measure. <laughs> um, you miss uh, talking about her role. Not that I'm listing her as an MVP, but I think that she played it well. Mm-hmm. She was the uh, police detective mm-hmm. um, in charge of the case, which became very pivotal at the end in the setup of... Uh, yeah, you know you know what? Let's talk about her for two seconds. Can we? Uh, yeah, because the, the next thing... This, I, okay, just so I know, this kills some time before I have to actually name an MVP of... You're stalling. Like my, I am. Yep. <laughs> Stall tactic. Okay, and go. <laughs> you literally just pulled the podcast, ver- podcast version of, oh, that's a good question. Squirrel! I need a minute. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, Debbie Mazar. Um, I love the fact that, I mean, her partner was okay um, and worked well, uh, did well in that scene in the pond shop when he has to pull his badge and it's like you know that there was that line of what do you say to a guy with two black eyes nothing he's been told twice yeah. um but debbie Mazar, and uh, when you consider that this this her cop her character has had to deal with people like chili palmer and in this case probably dealing with chili palmer before as well um she she knows that there are bad people do, that do bad things in like you know for lack of a better term, the underworld, and the Chili Palmer is one of the less bad guys. So it's clear that she has this almost knowledge, understanding. You know, you know, they know what their relationship is as far as he was a Shylock, but now he's in the movie business. We're not quite sure which is worse, and now he's trying to get to the music business. You know, she knows that he stepped away from the game, um, and the two of them clearly don't have any beef. I loved that there was. It, she wasn't trying to shake him down. She wasn't trying to, you know, put the muscle on him. She knew that if she talked to him, he would give it straight to her. And that's it. It was a great counterpoint to Travolta in that role. Now you have to stop stalling. <laughs> MVP time. Let's go. All right. Okay. You know what? Um, can I just uh, put the disclaimer out there that I loved each and every actor in this movie still stalling yep um you know we've already spoken at length about them so I, I don't have to say how great Dwayne the Rock Johnson was John Travolta stalling. I will always love <laughs> I gotta give okay Vince Vaughn stalling. 
Twinkle, twinkle, baby. Twinkle, twinkle. Vince Vaughn's your MVP, huh? No, no. No? Stalling. Oh, you're going Dabu. Dabu. I got to go Dabu. I loved him. Andre Benjamin was, was so much fun. He was so much fun. And I, and it, 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 I'm going to spoil it right now. If we ever do a semi-pro episode, yeah, Andre Benjamin's probably going to be my my MVP for that one because as Coffee Black, he was great in that. I, he, he's he's such a good actor. You know, Outcast is great. He's great. But, you know, he's such a good actor. But as I'm going through the list of characters you know I initially had Dwayne Johnson as my MVP because again this was very much a breakout role for him but I think yeah stalling I am stalling (laughs) (laughs) it's hard this is a hard question I think I think I think I have two MVPs you can't do that can you I can it's your show you could do whatever the hell you want I can do whatever the I want okay but for the record, our kids are going to really, really be mad at us because every time they listen to the show um, and there's a beep in it, they're like, Mom, Dad, can you guys stop swearing? We cannot listen to this one in the car then. No, no. F- Unedited. That, that they're not listening to this. Okay. <laughs> but uh, I would let them watch the movie, though. Oh, absolutely. Not that they would. They would ruin it. They'd talk all the way through it. But Yeah, they'd, they'd be like, can we watch YouTube afterwards? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but five minutes in, can we watch YouTube? This is boring. <laughs> Where's Lightning McQueen? Okay. Stalling. <laughs> stalling. Done Two. stalling. 50-50. Here we go. Okay. So, on one hand... Raji's got to be there, Vince Vaughn, because again, it, like it's a comedy film, and his his character was probably the most quotable of the film. Um, but I also have to give you know equal nods to Cedric the Entertainer for mm-hmm. Sin LaSalle because again, you had and we we talked about this like two of the most nuanced characters in this movie, and you know. They brought so much depth to characters that could have been one-note jokes, but they weren't. They were much more complex when you really get into the film, and I think that's that really plays well. Um, you know, also a, a a a hat tip to F. Gary Gray. You know, as far as directing this film, you know, I know he said he wanted to, he should have probably stepped away from it. The fact that it was a PG-13 instead of an R-rated film and that's a studio decision. But I think he absolutely brought out a, such a fun movie. You know, it was not, it was never going to be Get Shorty. It was never going to be Jackie Brown, but it's Be Cool. And that's cool for me. And F. Gary Gray, don't beat yourself don't beat yourself up too hard on this one. It's a it's a, such a fun movie. It's a gem. I think it was almost more fun in that it didn't need to be vulgar. Mm-hmm. It didn't need to be violent. The fact that it was the fact that it was PG-13, the fact that I mean any violent scene you know, like <laughs> drawing attention to the the Russian mafia guy who mm-hmm. had two black eyes by the end of it. Right. You know, I mean, yeah, they could have made it bloody and gory and horrifying and like Tarantino-esque or, or, but or, or darker more Tarantino-esque yeah but I, no the fact that it was fun I, I I will say that maybe as far as a character point of view yes it could have been an R rating and and maybe done a little bit better critic wise but I think having a PG-13 and having it the fun romp that it was you know it, it made it more accessible and I think it actually helped the box office of it and made sure that it was not a money loser um say what you will about that but i i 
I think F. Gary Gray did a phenomenal job. He is a phenomenal director. And, you know, rather than look back at this, at the things that it could have been, look at it as what it was. And it's a fun, fun two hours. Carrie, thank you so much for joining in on this. K-Weezy! K-Weezy! <laughs> <laughs> and to all of our listeners, thank you for listening to this episode of the, of the It's Not That Bad podcast. Now, here's the deal. If you think that there is a movie that is unfairly maligned, or you think it's so bad that there's no way in hell that we're going to be able to find anything good about it, hit us up on Twitter, at NotThatBadCast. Put it out there. We may even invite you onto the show. And let us know what movie you think we should cover next. I'm Jay. Carrie, thank you so much. This twinkle, twinkle, baby. Twi- twinkle, twinkle, baby. This is the It's Not That Bad podcast. Until next time, take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.